Hi there, and welcome to the Organic Stream Talk Show. I'm your host, Aline Murphy, and this week we're doing something a little different. We've been doing this podcast now for two years, and we've shared a lot of great stories and information in the course of that time. Of course, we will keep making more and more episodes, but every now and then, there are a few times when we feel the urge to highlight a past episode, maybe because the topic it covers becomes news and the show shares some great insights, or just because it's content that maybe our newer listeners have missed out on. And republishing an older episode is what we'll be doing today. And the topic is soil. Now, we all know it was the International Year of Soils last year, and this really helped to bring an awareness to the importance of soil conservation around the world, and a lot of discussions and initiatives were started as well. A big outcome for the International Year of Soils is that our soils are now explicitly mentioned in the UN's Sustainable Development Goals for the first time. And, importantly, the FAO's report, Status of the World's Soils Resources, was published by the Intergovernmental Technical Panel on Soils just after World Soil Day in 2015. This is the first report ever to evaluate soil health globally, which in itself is pretty extraordinary. But the findings themselves are sobering as well. The majority of the world's soil resources are only in fair, poor or very poor condition, and 33% of land is moderately to highly degraded due to the erosion, salinization, compaction, acidification and chemical pollution of soils. So there is much still to be done. And here at the Organic Stream, we have had some phenomenal guests come on the show to talk about soil health and exactly what needs to be done to conserve our soils, either on a practical level with sustainable agricultural techniques or with a focus on the policy-making and political aspects of the topic. I think with all the progress that's been made in the last year, it's time to revisit some of these older episodes and get a fresh take. So the first soil episode I want to revisit is an episode we did with the social innovator and industrial economist Robin Murray in May 2014 called Soil Crisis 2, Soil and the Circular Economy. This was a brilliant interview. As a zero-waste pioneer and a leader in the fair trade and environmental movements for many years, Robin had an excellent perspective to give on our current efforts in making soil health a priority and the circular economy a reality. This episode is particularly apt to share right now after last year's launch of the new circular economy package in Europe, which led to a lot of discussion about how exactly our circular economy should work and what direction we need to take to make it happen. Unfortunately, it was a bit of a letdown for our sector. Some of the key ingredients for healthy soils have been neglected. Reuse and prevention is not adequately supported and bio-waste recycling and composting targets have been weakened severely. So where does that leave us now? Well, we will continue to make change happen in big and small ways across Europe and the world, as we always do. And that brings me back to this week's episode. The circular economy is a large concept and it can be tricky to envision what the journey to success might look like. Robin Murray helps to break it down in simpler terms 
almost giving a blueprint of how social and economic paradigms change and the road bumps we might encounter along the way. In relation to soil health and sustainable food systems, I particularly liked his description of the Saikatsu co-ops in Japan as an example of how ordinary groups of people can make a real impact on a political level. After last year, it's important to remember that every one of us can all play a part in changing our societies for the better and creating a true circular economy that benefits our soils as well. So I hope this episode leaves you inspired to get involved or to keep up the good work. And just before we start, the link to the FAO report is on our podcast page and we'll be looking into it a bit more in the next few soil episodes. So please enjoy this interview and we'll be back with more episodes soon. Um, So Robin, we were talking in part one about the importance of soil health in human economies and also about the potential for a shift to a more circular, distributed economy. And you were listing a few ways that people have started to reconnect themselves with the soil, with the slow food movement, community gardens and farms being opened up to the urban population and examples like that. Um, But now in relation to forming a different system, a different model of production and distribution, um, how important is education and knowledge sharing for fossil or encouraging these kinds of changes? What I would say is that the movements, both the people pressing on policy, but also the people who are actually doing it, tend to be global. So we established a zero waste movement here or more than a decade ago, but it was part of an international zero waste international movement and it was established in a number of different countries. And the internet has allowed a wide sharing of practices. And in the arguments in this country, the experiences of Canada, of Australia, let alone elsewhere, have been very influential in saying, look, this actually happens. This isn't just a utopian. This is a different model. And particularly as it develops, you, you then have new technologies coming in, light technologies, small distributed technologies, not great big centralized ones. Those can be imported and then developed on your own here. So... I think there's a continuous process of self-education, but one which is within a collective. If you look at organic farming, it is social knowledge. If people are not privatizing this knowledge, they are sharing. And of course, this is what farming, when we grew up, this is what happened. People would discuss particular problems. We, we had a, believe it or not, an actual farmer's discussion group my father used to go to, where people would come I think once a month, from these hill farms and to discuss common problems. Well, now with the modern internet, you go much further and you you can share that. So having said that, I think there is a great need and a role for some formal structure of education, of specialist education. We've all, I think, many countries have inherited this on the agricultural side. And in America, that's very important. Those colleges have been absolutely central. And changing the approaches in those colleges or opening up those colleges to these new systems is an important part. There's been nothing similar on waste. Waste has been treated as part of a a technical college, but it's done in a very old-fashioned way. And it needs a quite different approach. And I think now we must look to make it global because many of the ways of looking at the thing are global. Every place has its own specificity. 
But I think this is where this new development, extraordinary development of massive online open courses, which is now taking place, which are free, but which you can also then link into local discussion groups or taking these courses with 5 million students in them. If one replicated that in terms of soils, in terms of waste, I'm going to call it nutrient management in relation to bio-waste, then I think that knowledge is absolutely central. Distributed knowledge is central. And I think probably this is going to be the key to a major change in the way in which we think about our agriculture and think about reconnecting it up. I'm very glad you said that because that's the whole idea behind compoststory.org. And I agree as well that um, in terms of waste and nutrient management, we really need to start um, working together and finding connections between groups of people all around the world. Um, from the work that we're doing, uh, we've come across so many different stories of people and groups doing unique and really interesting work. One of the examples which I, I found particularly inspiring in our work has been in Japan, where in, it started in the 1960s, but really gathered in the 1970s, was a movement led by women, almost entirely by women, and they had become concerned because there'd been a, a range of food scares, particularly around milk and the quality of milk and its impact for their children. It was children that led the concern. And so what they did is they said, they, they said, look, we're not going to buy our milk from the supermarkets and so on. We will go out and we will find farmers who we can talk to about how they produce their milk and we can ask them to produce organic milk. This was in the 60s. And we will then find a way of, of bringing it directly to us. So they started with milk and then they expanded other mainly food items to begin with. And they were one of the very early developers of box schemes. And because quite a few of them, I suspect, before they were married, worked in these Japanese factories, which were all electronic and not perhaps in the 60s, but late, certainly later in the 70s and 80s, uh, very well managed. They established this box scheme whereby the producers who they picked out and who they partnered with, on a Tuesday, as it were, would bring what had been ordered to a central collecting point. They'd all work as mums. They'd go in there and they would sort the boxes out. And then they would distribute them to their own households. They organised themselves in groups of six to ten households, which were called HAN, H-A-N. Now, this idea, which I, I've been involved in some box schemes, but my word, this is brilliantly done. And they now, in the Saikatsu co-ops, they now have 330,000 households in their schemes. 330,000. And they've reached right back to the farmers, so that they completely sidestep the supermarkets. And, the, and they're doing it much more cheaply. So some of the supermarkets are going out of business. And what they do is they take one product after another, they study it, they do the testing, and they then work with the farmers on standards, and they jointly discuss why some standards are more difficult than others, and, and then they open it out and say, does anyone have any ideas about what this farmer's problems have, etc. So they act as almost crowd intelligence on this. And what has happened is that they've raised the, the, their aim is explicitly to show that these higher standards are possible and then press politically for these to be adopted nationally. 
And so they've formed little local political parties, and they have a large number of local councillors who then press for these things within their local council to change the standards, and then they combine and press it nationally. This has changed both the, the food economy in terms of farming and its quality, but it also has changed the way in which food is thought about and then used and cooked in the home. And I think this is a model of how the soil economy and the human economy have been brought back together. That's fascinating. Uh, that's really amazing. So essentially, these communities have just bypassed the middleman and gone straight to the source, taking control of distribution and being directly involved with the producers. That's really cool. And um, do you think this model or this co-op model should be replicated then? Or would it be the main way to go forward in the future? Well, I think that is one way. I think we should all say to ourselves, right, what can we do about this? You quickly find that there are other people doing about it. And some are better at it than others. But the Japanese, what is amazing, the Saikatsu had started in 1972. So what is that? That's 30, 42 years. They are still enormously strong. They've kept the principles very much to the centre. Whenever they have problems, they discuss it openly. And they put, in terms of cooperatives, it's a very important point. What they've tried to do is always to retain the sense that you're in control of the thing and you're not just voting for people to do it for you. So they've purposely broken up some of their bigger organisations so that people feel that it is close to them. And if you don't do that, the people who then start running it, very quickly you get experts and they start running it and it becomes more like the old system. Now this, this model... And recently in South Korea, they've been copying the Japanese one. And they, within 15 years, have got four major food cooperative systems linking farmers and consumers. They've now got over half a million people in those, for almost from a standing start. But it, it's led in, as the Japanese put it, it's, it's not just how to get nice food. It is how to live a different life, how not to be what I think they call the robotic consumer. The role of a human being is not to be a robot and to be at the play of advertising and so on. It is to take this under your own control and think about it and participate in it, because that is what actually creating life is about. That approach, so it's not just the co-op. The co-op is an aspect of this. It is about a whole approach to the way we live our lives in whatever we're doing. Yeah, that's incredible. And I can easily imagine that such a co-op system, since there's such a link between the households and the farms, that could work to ensure that the household organic materials, like food scraps and so on, would be properly disposed of and brought back to the farm for composting. Because the consumers then would definitely understand the need for having a clean stream of organic materials for composters. Yes. But then as a larger social movement, and we talked about the ways governments are sometimes slow to react to this kind of thing in part one. Um, but when it comes to transitioning our current paradigm or economy into a circular economy, do you see any other opportunities or ways to build a movement so that it can move up to the government level and make real impact, perhaps? Well, I mean, the political issue, I was referring to it in the way in which new paradigms are introduced. And I think the first thing is, it's not done just from the top. You can't, it's, it's usually top down and bottom up going on at the same time. And in our kind of cultures, you have to have people who have some kind of connection to this. 
and some experience of it, which is why I mentioned gardening and getting people involved, means that they become interested in the new way of thinking. It's almost like speaking a language. One of the things we found in recycling is that if you introduce a scheme of boxes for recycling, that the interest in the environment, which in one borough of London was at about 23% before the scheme started, after people started recycling, within a year, it had gone up to something like 68%. And that what that taught me was that then people have a reason not to screen out difficult things. If there's nothing you can do about something, then you prefer, you know, these terrible events in Sudan, for example. If you had a brother or sister working there, you'd be extremely interested. But otherwise, it's somewhere far away, and there's so many of these things going on, you've got to live a life. Now, in the environment, if you can be actively involved in a way which fits in with life, then you become more open to this. And then you're interested. And if someone stands up and says, I believe X, Y, and Z, you think, yes. I think the same is true of soil. That the more people are involved, either in gardening or a community garden or whatever it would be, the more open they would be. And then you've got to have the social movements who actually are kind of barefoot producers and experts, and, you know, barefoot experts, people who are, whose life is this and about thinking about it and explaining it and being the people to animate it. So you've got that. And out of that, incidentally, if you look at it in the long term, because we have to, then out of this, some people will say, well, why don't I ever go for the local council? And some might even say, why don't I go for parliament? You know, that you're growing the crop like that. At the same time, any social movement, you know, will then link in with universities, will link in with specialists, who themselves may be worried. You know, that I don't personally know people who spend their lives on soils, but I am sure many of them have real worries. They think, oh, how am I going to influence this? And Oh, my word. So they become part of it. And you then can reach out to ministers particularly if we have this wider sense of representation, particularly if they can, if, if there are events or constituencies which mean that people have to listen. I mean, this is what politicians have to do, particularly if they can be represented. Then the politician is open to these different expertises because there's always contesting expertise. So it's partly a question of expertise and it's partly a question of, as it were, what is the political punch behind it? Uh, and you can never do it just with one or the other. Part of the battles we've had in waste is actually in public inquiries. You know, the, the, what I would call the old interests, they fund so-called science and consultants purely negatively in order to try and destroy the new arguments. And I spend a lot of my life in university. Coming from university, you're amazed that people are so instrumental about science. You know, that they're actually only looking for something which will argue a particular case and has been revealed on many things. Lead, lead is a very good example. It took 40 years to get lead finally banned from petrol. But, you know, what was then revealed, which happens in drug companies as well, which is people who are financed don't have to prove anything, just disprove whatever the argument is that they're opposing. So there is that part of the battle, and therefore people who are informed and who are able to relate to the new movement and the new paradigm, but also with the expertise necessary to that, they are part of the important mixture. 
Yeah, that's definitely true um, because there are a lot of interests at play here. And as you say, not all of them fight fairly. So that is definitely a challenge and leads to my next question now, which is about the challenges that might crop up. Uh, we've talked a lot about campaigning and policies and with your wealth of experience, I'm sure you're well aware of the roadblocks that can crop up along the way. Uh, can you tell me about what kind of roadblocks are in our way? And is it something we can overcome easily or is there still a way to go? Well, I think that there are many roadblocks along the way. One of them, if you're working at all levels of government, will be uh, financial. Namely, the treasurer comes along and says, no, 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 we're not going to have that. We've got no money. That is a very constant. And particularly when you're early on in a new disruptive technology, how to deal with this fact. Even if you say, look, I mean, this in the long run, it's going to be better, and this, that, and the other, he or she is interested in the pound in the actual pounds signs at the end, immediate, during this year's budget. So that will always be a factor. Very often, once these are established, then, oh my word, suddenly it actually becomes, it moves, and the same with waste. When we started off, it was more expensive to do our systems. But once we'd adopted here the Italian system, which was based on food waste collection first, and then followed by the others, and then you could you needn't have so much residual waste collection. Suddenly, you were actually being able to save money. Then the finance officers became your friends, not your enemies. Then the second lot are the lawyers, because laws will have been constructed and regulators around the old way of doing the thing, and then they may get worried. And that is, there is also an issue. For example, the question of how you treat organic food waste whether it's heated to 70 degrees or whether you need to put it up to 84 degrees or whatever it is. You know, what are you losing through that? Can we think through that so that you don't lose some of the microorganisms as a result of this? What is it going to be the effect of these? Different How does that come in? Well, the regulators just say, well, that's what it is. And, you know, and, and so those negative forces come in. And you have to be able to think through positively, you know, not in a, that is an issue. How do we deal with that issue? Then you have the interests, which may be both professional interests, that's how we've always done it, or that's how we've always organised it as well. <laughs> and then you have the commercial interests, which are also strong. The organisational interest, I find, has been one of the big ones, which is government, particularly, I suppose, in this area, it's local government in, in a way, which is they don't want to have complexity, simplicity, particularly now with uh, contracting out. They don't want to have to deal with a hundred different small contracts. They would love a simple contract, and then they monitor it. So how to actually have the interface between a government at any level and those who are doing the work in such a way that allows for that complexity? This is one of the very interesting aspects of modern public administration. But without it, what, what has happened in waste is that the big waste companies have effectively sidelined the community sector in Canada, US, Germany, I believe, certainly in the UK. It's dominated by, I think, only four major companies now. They say they're doing recycling, but it is not. They are certainly not upcyclers. They are profit maximizers who are used to dealing with residual waste and who want large facilities, the equivalent of the nuclear power plant, are not quite as dangerous as that. But that's what they're used to dealing with. That's what their large organizations can handle. Whereas we want a much more complex ecology in order to do that. 
So those are some of the roadblocks. And I never like to think of them as barriers because any creative process always finds a block, a problem. Then the question is how to get around them. And in this case, what kind of alliances, what kind of coalitions you can build to get in between them or to win some of them over and get them on your side? How do we do this? That's That, I think, is the art of what we might call transition, the politics of transition. Yeah, the art of transition. That's a really nice way of putting it. And yes, as you say, we need to be creative and open-minded in order to succeed in what we're doing. Oh, yes. Yeah. And um, I'm sure we've only scratched the surface of this topic right now, but unfortunately, Robin, that's all we have time for today. Uh, thanks a million for coming on. It was wonderful to have you on the show. Oh, very nice to meet you. And you too. Thanks, Robin. Bye-bye. That was part two of the two-part interview with Robin Murray for the organic stream on compoststory.org. If you have any questions or comments, do leave them at compoststory.org or send us a tweet at compoststoryorg. That's all we have time for this week. Hope you tune in next week for more great stories. <laughs>